0: Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where each week we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is John Stevenson, co-founder and director of Zero Procure and Serial Entrepreneur. Coming up on today's show... John take some time to sum up Phil...
1: Miserable on the outside but very dry, used to come up with some brilliant
0: lines. Phil gets all topical ahead of Super Bowl 55. I remember getting an American football for my Christmas one year and going out in the snow to become the world's greatest quarterback. And just when you think you've heard it all, John reveals this.
1: I took over from Guy Ritchie, he was the previous bar manager. He wrote Lockstock in two smoking barrels at the end of the bar.
0: All that and so much more as John talks us through his story and journey to date. In addition, there's some excellent content in here on starting a business and the full cycle to exit. John also has some amazing little stories, not to be missed. Don't forget, we launch a brand new episode each week telling the amazing and always amusing stories from hospitality. So make sure you hit that subscribe button and give us a like and a share across your favourite social networks. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to the next edition of Hospitality Beats with me, Phil Street. Today, we cross the line and head into the world of procurement, a side of hospitality that's uh, actually vitally important. Our guest has also not had what I would classify as your typical route to where he is, which I always find really very, very interesting. So I'm delighted to welcome the founder and director of Zero Procure, John Stevenson.
1: Hi, Phil. How are you?
0: I'm very well. How
1: are you doing? Yes, Phil. I'm absolutely fine this morning. It's... uh... Typical winter's morning in the lead-up to Christmas. <laughs> You're
0: Wimbledon-based, as we were talking about uh, before, isn't it? is yeah. its it absolutely chucking it down where you are?
1: Yes. Yes, it yeah. is. Yes, I'm
0: Stansted-based, uh, and it's
1: grim. Yes, it's uh, it's miserable for sure. But I believe that towards the end of this week, it's going to get a little bit nicer. Let's hope so.
0: Yes. I'm not uh, sure it's a, a white Christmas, but it's... Um, It's getting colder, but nicer.
1: I seem to remember white Christmases. You would have them every so often, but it seems to be a long, long time since I can remember one. Maybe that's just because of where I live now.
0: Yeah, well, you and I were were both sort of born-bred East Coast Scotland, and I remember a white Christmas pretty much every single year. I remember getting an American football for my my Christmas one year and going out in the snow to to become the world's greatest quarterback. (laughs)
1: Right. You should speak to my oldest boy. He's obsessed with the Baltimore Ravens. Really, but the um, strangely as the accent would not give you a clue to. I was born in Hampshire. I was born in Winchester. Were you really? I'm I'm the youngest of ten kids, and all of the others were born in Scotland. Um, Right. My mum. Had nine kids with uh, an, another guy, you know, and then right. for whatever reason they they split up, and her and my dad got together. Um, and I think because of the way things were, they just decided to try and start a new life down in the south of England, you know. Right. And um, yeah. so but when I was four years old, they were like, "No, this is not for us." They moved back to Edinburgh. When I first went to school, I had a a little Hampshire accent. Right. And then and then was richly teased about that, as you can imagine. I can imagine, yeah. He quickly changed that. Back in Edinburgh. And then, again, when I was 10 years old, they decided, let's go back down there to see if that will work again. So I had another year down there where I went from having a Scottish accent and teased mercilessly about that to having an English accent after that year when we came back up to Edinburgh. And after that, it was just, let's just stay here. The boy doesn't, yeah. know, <laughs> the boy doesn't know what accent to, to use, you know.
0: So your uh, your parents liked to test you then quite early on in your life.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was it was just one of those. There was a, just a lot of flux going on. Yeah,
0: I, mean,
1: mm. I, I went to six schools in two years. Wow, you know and that's you know it's just quite weird when you sort of get through that. So luckily, by from secondary school all the way through, there was no. Um, it was the same school with the same set of friends and all that sort of stuff. So those yeah. years of the life, the really formative ones, you know, when you you're Making friendships and that sort of stuff, that was all quite stable, but before that, it was a little bit all over the place,
0: yeah. Well, that you know, it, it made you adaptable, that's probably what it was. Yeah, you maybe didn't feel like that at the time, but
1: you don't really. In fact, when you're really young, you don't think it's strange, it's just the way things are, you know. Oh, yeah, jumping in, there's, there's eight of us jumping in our car to try and do a 400 mile journey again, okay, that's what, we're yeah.
0: I remember, actually, we were talking about this before we uh, turned the microphone on. I uh, was born uh, in and around the Perth area, and uh, my parents moved to the west coast of Scotland. And the only time that I remember thinking, oh, God, was day one of school, just because I didn't know anyone uh, and all of that. But actually, as you say, I, it was just like, oh, are we doing this? Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's I mean, kids are just so resilient most of yeah. the time, you know? they just whatever the situation they find themselves in, they'll, they'll they'll find their way through it, you know. Yeah, what happens to us. Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> Great. Well, I mean, that was a good uh, five minutes of talking about the weather, about accents. Uh, we're really nailing all the uh, the key subjects. Uh, but, well, take us all the way back to the, the beginning of your career. How did you kind of, how did you get into hospitality in the first place?
1: So I remember speaking to my dad when I was about 16 or 17 and then, what, what sort of jobs could we do? You know, he, mm. he was a bus driver, and, that, and and he says, well, he said there's two great jobs that you could get. He says you can be a salesman. He says well you could be a barman. Yeah. And he says if you're a salesman, it's the only job in the world where you can write yourself your own pay rise. And I went, what do you mean by that? He said, well, if you sell more, you get paid more. I went, right, okay, that's fair enough. And he says, no. that, and, if, and if you're a barman, you'll meet lots of girls, which Oof, I thought was tough choice. Solid, solid advice. But the fact is, is that at 16 I was too young to be a barman. Yeah. So I worked selling suits as a little trainee sort of sales guy in this small menswear shop in Edinburgh called Andrew James Menswear, and it was great fun. You know, I was just a young 17-year-old lad who didn't know any better, but you know, used to get couples coming in trying to pick out a suit for the wedding. You know, <laughs> I was saying, right. oh yes, sir, that fits you fine. Yeah, with all using all of your experience. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But I, I, I definitely wanted to work in the bar trade. It'd been something that I'd always wanted to do, and I was lucky enough to. There was a brand new nightclub in Edinburgh. It was opening back in the end of 1985, called the Electric Circus. It was this really first million pound nightclub that was going to open up in Edinburgh to be a big thing. Yeah, right. I decided to um, the the newspaper had the interviews, and I applied for the job as assistant manager. I was still 17 at the time, because but the nightclub was going to be opening after I turned 18. So I, I, went, I went to the interview with the general manager, a lady called May Payton. May, she'd been the general manager of a famous bar called Bianco's in Edinburgh, and it was those owners that were opening up the nightclub. And I sat down there for the interview, she says, right, well, you've come for the job as assistant manager. I went, yeah. She said, have you ever managed before? I went, no. She said, have you ever worked in the bar tree before? I went, no. She said, but why are you applying for this job? I said, well, I thought you could teach me, you know, I'll be your assistant and you can teach me what to do. And she just sort of puzzlingly looked back at her sheet and she looked up to me. She said, we've got a position as a bus boy, which is effectively a glass collector. I went, I'll take it. Yeah. So so that's what happened, and my first ever job, just having just literally by a few days turned eighteen, was as a busboy in a, a brand new nightclub that opened up in Edinburgh. And it was super busy and.
0: That's brilliant. I'd love the people. the concept there of shoot for the stars, and if you if you hit the mountains, that's that's all right. That still works. Um And you shot for the stars
1: by... I don't think a friend's doing that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> still, uh, yeah, to uh, push for uh, for a job that you're not ready for and then settle on one that you are.
1: Yeah, she's she's still a great friend today. She she owns a famous bar in Edinburgh, which, like a lot of other places, is going through a really tough time, called Fingers yeah. Piano Bar, which is a late-night uh, music venue which hasn't been open for 10 months or so. But, so that was it. I work in a nightclub. After 12 months, believe it or not, I, I actually did become the assistant manager in that place. Right. So that was just, I think because we'd, we'd got through so many people by that time, I was just one of the last original people standing, you know. Right. Because it'd been, quite a, it'd been quite a year for the nightclub, you know. It started off very busy and then didn't end up as busy and stuff like that. But yeah, but I loved it. I absolutely loved being in, in the bar trade. Just the fact that you could meet so many people. It was just felt everything was possible to you. Yeah, it was, it was great, you know. Yeah, absolutely. How long were you there for? So I was there for just about a year. And actually, there was a, a guy who came into the nightclub who was at the time to me was a famous guy. He used to play football for Hibernian, the one of the Edinburgh teams. And he owned the bar in Rose Street, which is for people in Edinburgh. Rose Street was like the main bar street you know lots of people would come from other parts of the UK to to go to that street up and down you know there's a yeah. few towns in the world that in, in the UK that have streets similar to that you know and he said look do, do you want to come and work for me and I went yeah so basically he was obviously just an, an owner him and his wife ran it and and I was there basically to to basically do what he told me and I learned an awful lot for this guy this was a really tough man from a A little mining town in Mid Scotland called Whitburn, and he he didn't suffer fools gladly. So it was um it was quite a an education in learning how to run a pub from being somebody who was just in a nightclub, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very different world, and it's a and it's a sort of these kind of small pubs in that you know they're very very hand to mouth. So you know every every busy nights like a a lottery went to them. So, you, you know, you really understand the, the power of if somebody comes in for a couple of drinks, trying to make them stay for that third one, you know, or yep. trying to build up a, a regular clientele, you know, so that can yeah. you can get a little bit busier at all times. So I, I, quite early on, I realised the commercial realities of what it was like trying to make a small business successful.
0: Yeah, I, I suppose that's the thing as well about being in a small business is that you get a lot more direct access to kind of everything every part of the business that that, that then as you say you can then begin to appreciate very very quickly how each of these little things impacts your the success of of the business in itself
1: yeah he he definitely i I, I've, i've not been in touch with this guy for years and i'd love to because there's there's times in your life when somebody really stands out about learning key fundamental values which you take through with you and you don't always know it at the time yeah but certainly as as you get older and as you know you might have your own business further down the line and even if you become a dad you you, you realize certain things from people that you've learned that have been a massive help to you know and he certainly was a guy who uh, i learned a lot of core values from mm. for sure yeah
0: and how long how long did you stay there?
1: So I was with them for about three and a half years. So okay. that took me up to I remember it would have been twenty two and it was just they'd open up a second place. But um it was just it was just time for me to move on and I and I wanted to try to do something different. I went to work for a a company selling I think it was selling insurance policies to small businesses, but just, I was just a young daft laddie, to be fair, Phil, just a bit young yeah. for that sort of thing. I think it was just to try and do anything to get, you know, to not be working with these people, this guy for the time. Yeah, um, you still, I was, still had that um,
0: that advice from your your father right, about yeah. the, the, so I've done the bar thing, so let's get the sales thing.
1: Yeah, but I was, it's, I did that. And then for a period of time, I was doing that and working in a bar in the evening, so. Right. So, uh, so I was sort of having both worlds, but as it turned out, I was probably much more suited to the world of selling drinks and having a laugh with people in a in a pub, rather than talking to people about their um, buildings and contents insurance.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> I could, yeah, I can, uh, I can see the attraction in um, in staying in the drinks business.
1: Yeah. So I, I so I, I worked at a couple of other places in Edinburgh. There's a, great bar called champagne charlie's which which i ran for a while which was a real stalwart for the after work crowd there in castle street and just met lots and lots of good people and then and then there was a place called smithy's ale house which i I ran for two years it was a it was a different type of hospitality venue where it was very much about real ale and stuff like that so yeah you had to learn a lot more about those sorts of things which which I got really passionate about for a while because it it gave you something to aim for. You know, there was a a very popular beer guide by the guys from Camera, and it was quite a fill up in your cap if you could be quoted in the book. Right. And we managed to get the bar into that guide. So, you know, you would get beer drinkers in from other parts of the UK coming in to, to try it out if you were given a good recommendation.
0: Yeah. Do you know, I, I learned a bit about that. I'm a member of my local roundtable and we put on a couple of events across the year. We haven't this year, of course, but one of them was a, a beer and gin festival. And when we, uh, we, we contacted Canberra for support, I was amazed to learn that there's this whole world of real ale followers out right. there that, that, that will actually go the full length of the country to try a new ale. Yeah. So if you get that advertised in that you're doing an event and you're going to have a, a a a commissioned ale specifically for that event, that you get all these people who don't live anywhere near where you are coming to your event, I found that absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, no, it's it is quite amazing, and um, it's funny. I was my my oldest son, who's uh, fourteen, we were talking about Comic Con. You know the massive. Festival for yeah, yeah. all things sort of the Marvel world and superheroes and that said, there's something like that for beer, you know. <laughs> and he couldn't quite believe me, you know. Yeah, people, people would be, you know, fanatical about coming up to events for beer, but but they are as as you found out as well.
0: Yeah, there's two two other places in Edinburgh that I remember from my. I didn't. I never lived in Edinburgh, but I, I had a lot of mates from there, so visited on, on numerous occasions. Um, the Rockin' horse.
1: I don't even know that.
0: That was a, it. Was a heavy metal place. That's probably why nobody knows that except except me. I think I was the only one in. Um, <laughs> and um, and Greyfriars Bobby, the um, the famous one yes. that was in a uh a, a movie of the about a little dog.
1: Yes, yes. No, it's funny enough. I, I was there with the family not that long ago. You know, like two thousand eighteen. And getting all the pictures because there's just outside there's a little statue of the dog, isn't it? Just opposite yep. the bar, and it's, yep. uh, it's it's quite it's quite famous. But
0: anyway, that's completely irrelevant. I uh, apologise, but
1: it's good advertising for the bar, which I'm sure they'll, they'll need it soon enough. You know.
0: Yeah, I'm going to call them for um sponsorship <laughs> money when I get off. Yeah.
1: So after I'd been doing that, I was I was at twenty-seven, and it's like, you know, what what am I going to do here? Am I just going to continue to be? A guy running different pubs in Edinburgh, etc. You know, at that time, there didn't seem to be any clear path to becoming a bar owner. But a friend of mine had moved to London about two years previous to that to work in the upcoming restaurant scene. At that time, yeah, he he opened. He was one of the guys that opened up Quaglino's, which was okay. the, actually, you know that was the first of the properly super restaurants that opened in London back in the early nineties. Yeah, and he'd been doing that for a while, and then him and a friend they'd met, they were opening up a restaurant in Chiswick around it, uh strand of Green called Oliver's Island. And they said, look, do you fancy coming down to to help us do this? And I thought, brilliant. I'll go down to London for a few months, sort of help them do that, you know, that I could set up the bar for them and it'll be, um, it'll just be a nice thing to do, you know? Yeah. And then I got down there and it was like about 10 degrees warmer and there was, you know, there was just lots of gorgeous people knocking around. I thought, well, I'm not going to rush home Just yet, uh, you know. And as it turned I never went back to live. Although, I, although I enjoy Edinburgh more now than I did when I actually lived there. But um, yeah, I just never went
0: home. Yeah, that's that's the thing, though, isn't it? My uh, brother lives up near, just outside of Inverness, and it's always a pleasure to go visit. But uh, I can't imagine living up there just because of the the access to London for me is. London's just a, a an incredible city when it's when it's allowed to be open
1: yeah you yeah, know london is you know it, certainly now when i go and visit Edinburgh, and, and unfortunately a couple of years ago my father passed away so there's, there's not really a lot of family reasons to, to go to Edinburgh just to see my friends, right. you know but obviously yeah. we, can, we can keep in touch all the time but i always feel like where, where your your family are your, your wife and kids are that's obviously home isn't it so i always yeah. feel like i'm coming back home when i get down to here you know yeah, I yeah, never, yeah, I never thought I'd say that 25 years ago.
0: <laughs> no, no, <laughs> yeah, they'll not let you back over the border now. You've said that as well.
1: <laughs> I, I think I might get a passport through my dad's birth because obviously, but my um, you know, I think I, uh, my children are the last ones who'll be able to play for Scotland because they'll lose the um, right to, ah, uh, right, right. So, unless of course they move there, but I'm not sure about that.
0: Well, they should probably have uh, loftier ambitions than playing for Scotland anyway, but
1: um, well, you know, yeah, well, I'll a, just alienate
0: a, the country as well.
1: As, a, as I mentioned earlier, my 40 year old, for some unknown reason, because I've got I, I, I know nothing about the sport, he's just obsessed with becoming a quarterback and wants to do his further education when he gets older in America. And right? None, none of us have any connections to America. I mean, we have a, a couple of friends there, but just, just through his own. Search and you know he, he's just decided that's what he's going to do, and I think it's that, funny, isn't it? Do you know what? Giving people the, I mean, my dad was a bus driver all his life, yeah. But he used to make me think you could do anything, yeah. Really, you know. And um, if you know, if I'd said to him I wanted to do that, he, he certainly wouldn't have been one of these parents that would say, "Don't be silly, you can't do that." He would have said, "Right, well, what do you need to do to do it?" So,
0: yeah. You know,
1: all the time I've said to my son, if "That's what you want to do." start working out the ways in which you would have to make that happen
0: you know yeah i can absolutely get right behind the the, beyond the kind of wanting to become a a quarterback in an american football team just the 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 travel element of going to the to the states alone at a young age i think is a really uh, very interesting thing to do and I'd, i'd say that as somebody who did it myself and it's just you know, when you're trying to kind of figure out where, you, where you're going and, and what you want to do and all of these sorts of things, and you don't have the safety net of mum and dad around you to make these decisions for you. It was a, a really life-changing experience for me to, to head to America and, and just spend some time there and, and try to figure out a path.
1: It's, the, it's when you're doing the high wire act without the safety net underneath you for the first yeah. time. Yeah, And, and you know, you'll fall a few times you know, but that's the whole point of it, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've taken you off track again. Um, you'll know, If you've listened to any of the others, you'll know that that's a fairly running theme.
1: Yeah. it's it's Actually, it's very enjoyable to just think back to that, but it'll be very interesting to to see what it would be like, you know, if, I knew, if I'd known then what would happen to me now, how much I would have believed it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Probably would have. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, it, what happened next? So came to London, was uh, working in this restaurant. Didn't go. Worked in a couple of places, uh, notably a, a really good bar restaurant in Wandsworth Bridge Road in Fulham called Joe's Brasserie. Still, still right. there today. It's been, it's been going around for years. That place. And this was in the end of 1997 and 1998. There was just some year. I, I took over from Guy Ritchie. He was the previous bar manager for me. Right. He he wrote Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels at the end of the bar. While My was life. It. Yeah.
0: God, that's a, that's a bar set high, isn't it? Pardon yeah, the pun. Right. Yeah. I mean, I
1: obviously didn't know that because he would have just been, um, he would have then had to go on and take that too. But it was, um, yeah. the, the locals still talked uh, about talk him, you know. Right. But he'd obviously spent a lot of time writing the, Screenplay because the the bar sales had gone right down. So by the time that we got there, the bar wasn't set high and trying to make the place, the place busy. Right. And, and as I mentioned earlier, because of the experiences I have had back in Edinburgh working with uh, Willie Irvin and and his business, I knew how to try and get a bar busier in terms of like you know making it more commercially successful. And right. actually, in that year, that that was a the bar element of that restaurant was doing three thousand pounds a week in wet sales within Four months, we had it doing eleven thousand pounds a week, right? Wow. Which was a big difference for them, yeah. You know? Yeah, no doubt. And it, and it was and it was really good fun, really good, really good laugh. You know, I, I, I played football for a, a team in London, which uh, it was called London Hibernian, and there was lots of guys who you know it was, that was before the Facebook and things like social media. People used to actually join clubs and societies so that they could catch up when they came to London. Yeah. so we used to get all of them and all their friends and that coming down you know so it was it was it was it was quite a, a fun fun time but then I'd, I'd met someone then and decided that we were going to get married which was you know in no time at all which didn't turn out to be the best decision right but, so I left London for uh, about a year got married uh, well funny I got married in Australia because my mate had just moved there, so I wanted him to be the best man. So he said he couldn't come back, so we decided to go over there. That's oh, it's a decent excuse to go, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we—I got married on the steps of Sydney Opera House the first time, around, you know. So it was a great wedding. The, the marriage, of course, it wasn't suit But I, that's where my oldest daughter uh, was conceived. So there was some good came out of that, for sure, you know. Yeah. And then it was time to come back to London after a while because it wasn't working out. And that's when I came back down, started working for a company that was, again, back in Salesville that just gave me access to a company car and things like that. And then I got the opportunity to work for a business because of one of my, my teammates that was a supplier to the hospitality sector. He used to supply cleaning and support staff to hotels and restaurants. Right. And I thought, well, I, I know, I know how these sort of businesses are, you know. I thought, well, I'll start doing some work with them. And it, and it turned out the owner of the business wasn't very good, but I thought the idea for that business was really good, you know, where yeah. a, a restaurant or hotels, instead of employing their own kitchen porters and cleaners, would outsource them to a business who would take care of the recruitment and vetting and all that sort of stuff for them, mm. training, etc. So we started up a business in 2006 called Act Clean, right, which... Um, we were just interviewing people at the KFC and Marble Arch and we didn't have any offices in that. But what we did have is we'd, we'd met some really good people in and, and the, and the previous job and we were given great intros to speak to people. So we, we quite quickly built up a, a, a well-known clientele, even for a business that was quite small, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, the wonderful Gillian Thompson, who later became a, a colleague of mine, He's the director of operations at Gordon Ramsay, and I think because of the accent, I managed to get a, we managed to get a meeting with them to talk about their requirements. And, <laughs> and, and it was it genuinely was that. It was, it was, her assistant was a lovely South African lady, and she said, "Oh, this guy's came in, but he's he's from Scotland." And Julian apparently said to her, well, "Get a meeting with him there," and and that's how we basically started working with Gordon Ramsay. And when you're building a business. Having marquee names is quite important. So it gives you a bit of validation so you can speak to other people.
0: Yeah. I mean, ultimately,
1: yeah. Ultimately, ultimately what you've got to do well in what you're doing, but you know, in order to actually get past the initial barriers of speaking to people, it was really helpful for us to have such a, a marquee name to be able to say that well, will we do it for these people, you know? And yeah. and and that was a good lesson to learn as well in building a business that when you start to get bigger names you can leverage from that. When you get bigger and better clients, then other different bigger and better clients will be um, very, very keen to speak to you as well, yeah. Yeah. And that that business was a was a really big success. It allowed me to really immerse myself in the hospitality world because even though what our business did was just supporting hospitality businesses, you know, you were in and around it all the time. You know, you and I think because we understood what hospitality professionals were going through, it just allowed you to speak to them in a language that they understood. You know, yeah. you 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 knew the knock on effect if a member of staff doesn't turn up. You know, you know how important it is to try and solve that problem for them as quickly as possible, you know. Mm. If someone doesn't turn up for a service, they can put the whole you can put the whole day in jeopardy because everybody's behind a little bit
0: yeah uh, it definitely uh it doesn't matter if you've if you run a a big business with you know forty members of staff on a a service or whatever versus you know three or four if one of the, those cogs don't turn up it's uh, it throws everything out of kilter
1: it certainly does and also it 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 allowed us to think about it in our business actually we could be really valuable to these people who are trying to make sure that their guests are looked after in the best possible way. So if we could look after the parts of the business that didn't necessarily generate them revenue, but were quite important to them, it could allow them to concentrate more on the more creative parts of uh, their operations. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we did really well. The business doubled in size every year for the first five years. You know, it just it became a really good business. There was three other guys that I started the business with. Two of which I've played in the same football team with, you know, and the, the business done well.
0: Yeah, it's funny where you make the connections, isn't it? They can they can come from anywhere.
1: Yes, and, you know, the, the amount of brilliant people. I mean, I mean you've spoken previously about this. We met people like Chris Shepherdson from the EP, and we were associated with them for quite a while. And just literally networking out and about in London two or three nights a week for years, as it felt like. But you have to sort of put in those kind of miles in order to get your head around what the hospitality sector in London's like. Yeah. But it, it, it obviously paid dividends. You know, we, we got to the stage with the business where not everybody wanted to continue doing it. So we decided to put the business up for sale back in 2017. And as it turned out, it became a, a managed buyout because the investors wanted one of the original people to stay stay on and that became me right so so we sold the business for just under 11 million pound which which from starting it from nothing yeah was it was was a great return
0: i assume you weren't uh, still interviewing people in a kfc no at that
1: point no no no. (laughs) No, it's not there anymore
0: all right otherwise otherwise we would have been yeah
1: (laughs) it's still still the cheapest office we've ever had
0: yeah yeah no absolutely I can relate a little bit to that because we um, have a, my own recruitment company as well and we recruit for management up to board level. And we made a, a strategic decision at the beginning when we started the business to keep the costs down as much as possible. We wouldn't run an office, but we'd we'd utilize the the all the many wonderful hotel lobbies that exist around London, dependent on where we needed to be in town. And in actual fact, I found that whole process really interesting. It's as you were talking about you, you, it kind of helps keep your eye in as to what's going on, but notwithstanding the the hotel lobby you might find yourself sitting in, but you know, your walk from the tube station to that hotel, there's you know, and you see, oh wow, there's like this whole retail development going on. I wonder what's going to go in there, and all of a sudden you know your knowledge level is so much higher than if you we were just sitting behind a desk all day recruiting.
1: Y- y- You can't beat, at times, feet in the street for those reasons that you've just said there, Phil. Because it allows you to put the dots together in your own mind as well, you know?
0: Yeah, and it's frightening the amount of times that something comes up in conversation when you've just seen it two days before uh, or something. You just happen to be walking past, you know, and and then somebody talks about it and you go, oh, if you'd have spoken to me about that three days ago, I wouldn't have known what you were
1: talking about. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Also London's really accessible on foot. You know, you it is, totally you get to lots of different parts of London which if you're not from London you see a tube map, you think oh you've just got to get a train here then everywhere. But I almost all the time I'm there, you know, I'll go into town and if I've got three or four meetings, I'll just do it on foot, you know, I'll just yeah. make sure the timing's because first of all, walking about's never a bad thing anyway, you know. But yeah. It's it's also sometimes quicker.
0: <laughs> well, you you factor in the fact that you 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 know, ten minutes down onto the platform, ten minutes back up. Then the the train journey itself, and yeah, you know, if it takes you twenty five minutes on the tube to get there, the chances are you can probably walk it in about the same time.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. So the that that whole, the whole process of going through a management buyout from having a business which you started from nothing, and then you know having to sort of put yourself in front of investors and all that sort of stuff and, you know, basically basically pitch the business, you know, and the idea that people, which was quite a process. It's a lot harder than people might think it's going to be. Mm. It it, is, I think it was from the beginning to the end, it was probably 18 months, and it it certainly wasn't easy, you know. In fact, unfortunately, through that whole process, the three guys that I started that business with, we haven't even spoken one word since
0: then. Right.
1: Which, you know. It just is what it is. Sometimes, I guess you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, but, yeah.
1: Uh, You know, these things can take a bit of a chunk out of you. You
0: know, no doubt. I mean, you know, if especially, I'd imagine that you, you were all putting your your heart and soul into it in very different ways, and the way that that then impacts your you know each individual's lives, and and also things change, right? I mean, people's desires and needs change across their life. That's just inevitable. So it stands to reason that I think the people that, that are able to. Survive in business with each other over multiple 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 years, I take my hat off to them because it's it is a, it's a, such a changing environment out there, so many different factors to consider
1: yes i I think that um, I think that you've got to have really 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 strong found and you 've got to be really aligned really yeah. really aligned you know and the the lessons i 've learned from that you know are to make sure that the people that you're working with, whichever whatever it is you're going to do, try and get as much alignment as possible, you know, round what you actually want from the whole process, you know. And they yeah. don't have to. They don't have. When I say alignment, you don't have to want the same things, but you have to be keen to go about it the same way to get to them, you know. Yeah. But it was still a great result, and I think that when everybody looks back on it, they'll realise that they did well to start a little business. And, you know, managed to have a, a decent result of selling it for that sort of money, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, but I stayed on with the business for a while after that because I wanted one of the originals to do it. And it was just, it, it was tougher, is the truth. You know, the Right. The growth, when you sell a business, you put in really ambitious growth plans into your, into your IM, you know? So you're telling people we're going to do this based on the stuff that you've done in the past, you know? Yeah. The, the hospitality, particularly in London over the last few years, became tough finding people didn't it just yeah and that was at all levels you know, you know let's we won't get political yet, you know but after the brexit vote in 2016 you know the people who wanted to do the sort of jobs that that type of business had were there wasn't as many of them around you know so yeah it just it just made it more and more difficult and for me being in the position i was in in that business it was like i couldn't do anything about that that you know, I think the business maybe needed to find somebody that could do something about that, you know. Yeah, yeah. At the end. So at the end of 2019, the conclusion was come to that maybe it's time to move on, and that's what I did. So I actually left that business at the end of 2019, and throughout the first six months of 2020, I was on garden and leave. Right. Obviously, during that time, Rome burnt to the ground.
0: I was going to say nothing really happened, did it? Uh,
1: and <laughs> I mean, then? it was it was just. It was weird it, not actually being in anything, you know sitting back watching this happen hmm. I mean it's you know i I hate to say it, but from my point of view, I was very lucky because I can only imagine that the stresses of running a business that was got had gone from billing thirty seven thousand hours a week one month to two hundred hours a week the following month yeah
0: i mean it's it's quite
1: immense. It's crippling. Yeah, I mean the commercials and the financials are absolutely real, but the what it would do for your your mental state, you know, it would be really really tough. You know, because yeah, and there's so many businesses, and you know, when I got to thinking about this, there's so many businesses going to have to pick themselves up and dust themselves down and effectively start again. You know, a rebuilding process, which is why. At least having the time to think about it, as uh, we came up with the idea for my new business.
0: Yep. So yeah. So tell us, tell us about that.
1: So, uh, having been, you know, working in hospitality for a long time, we were aware that there was um, a number of procurement type businesses out there. Some of them are more well known than others, and I won't, I won't mention the names. I'm sure some of the people listening would know who they were, you know. And yep. we kind of followed traditional models, where they would go into a business and they would say look we'll look through your entire supply chain products and services and we'll identify how much savings we could get for you through that process yeah and I'll I'll just make up the numbers to illustrate the point so just say they told the business that they could save them 100 thousand pounds by making these changes or just renegotiating and what they would do these particular companies would say, we will charge you then say 25 percent of that saving as our fee. Yeah, so yeah. It, you would think that, well, actually we're not paying for it because we're getting this one out of the savings. But what was, what was happening in a lot of those models was that um, the relationship between the customer, the operator and the supplier could become very stretched. Uh, if right. the supplier was being put under an incredible pressure to you know, really nail down on their prices. you know. And they mm. have to use tactics about if you don't do something about this, you're getting chopped out. You're not going to work here anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But what the models didn't also tell is that actually they would still get a commission from the supplier as well, the incoming supplier. So the customer had to spend something, whether it's you know whatever that percentage was, but the company would also be paid from an incoming supplier by way of a commission. Yeah. That. And what I thought about when you know, when we were in the middle of this pandemic, it's like, "Well, the last thing that any business needs right now is to incur more costs." You know, and especially ones that are going to be having a new type of reality. You know, once the pandemic and all its um, and all its woes wash through. Mm. So we, with a with a good friend of mine who'd been been a client for a few years, and he was a friend for a number of years when he wasn't working in that particular industry. And then, he, and then he became a client again. Uh, There's a guy called Clive Shepherd. Clive was the director of purchasing for the Dorchester um, yep. collection. But prior to that, he'd opened up the Rosewood Hotel and he'd been at the Savoy in 12 years. So proper,
0: yeah, he's got a ter- terrible pedigree.
1: Yeah, yeah, pro- proper stellar industry knowledge of um, procurement at that sort of end of the marketplace. And yep. um, and our other partner, Lucy Flinter, Lucy had to actually. I, again, had done work with when I was at my previous business, Act Clean and but also she'd been a friend. Her and her husband are good friends of my family, and she she's just a very very smart lady who she helps people take things that are just ideas and come up with a plan to make them a reality. Right. And you know you need people like that in your life, I think, because it's yeah. easy coming up with ideas, you know, turning them into something tangible needs a bit of planning and organization you know
0: and yeah yeah for sure
1: it's also important to know what skill sets you don't have in yourself so <laughs> you can surround yourself with people that have have this, the the gaps that are in you that an yeah and
0: well that's massively important in in any organization isn't it I, I, but yeah. even more so when you're uh, when you're starting out you i think you have a propensity when you start a something from the ground up to kind of take on too much and you're not necessarily playing to your strengths, so I think it's, you know, that's where the energy is in any business, right? Is is getting everybody to to play to their strengths.
1: Yeah, I, I, I could agree more. And uh, and again, liking the people is very important as well, you know. Yeah. so Then then you can have a great chat. So we came up with the idea for Zero Procure, and it's it's a very it's a very straightforward model, and it's you know it's 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 not the first time it's been done. It's it's more popular in the B two C world. But basically, we do the things that a procurement company would do, but we just don't charge the customer. Right. We we get compensated in the way of a, a commission from an incoming supplier. And in some cases, you know, we won't even ask the customer to change the supplier if it's a they have a strategic reason for not wanting to change from that particular supplier. Yeah. Because effectively, what we are is we're a a low cost sales resource for the supplier. You know, they'll pay us a small small percentage for business again. So, you know, it's just another way for them to win businesses by using a model like ours. But the important thing about it is because we don't charge customers or have any sort of contract with them, it's just a resource for them to use. You know, and also smaller businesses, it might allow them to get better buying power than they would if they were just acting on their own as well. Yeah. Obviously, there's a number of companies. You know, there's companies that um, have more buying power because they may have ten restaurants or something like that. You know, but then you know, if you only have one restaurant, you know, you've got the buying power of that restaurant. What we're trying to do is be able to galvanize these businesses' buying power together and doing some deals with suppliers, which will give them more favorable pricing. They still have the relationship with the supplier, Phil. You know, that has yeah. nothing to do with us. We just try and make the introduction and make the commercial relationship one that works for them both, and it should obviously work for the supplier because we give them access to more customers for doing this.
0: Yeah, isn't that just the 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 most wonderful thing though about uh, and how business should actually operate? Is you know when when everybody involved in in any kind of relationship is all walking away happy, rather than feeling like they've been steamrolled or railroaded or or you know forced into making some kind of contractual arrangement you know, everybody wins yeah and i don't think that that's that difficult to attain and yet for some reason somewhere along the line and in a lot of instances it just kind of gets out of uh, out of sync
1: yeah it's it was really it was really important to me to have a business where there was literally no losers you know ev- everybody should be able to do the bits that they're supposed to do, and not have to be tied to it with contracts. You know, and, yeah. and in my previous business, sometimes that we would, you know, a relationship might be strained with a customer for whatever reason, and then the contract was sometimes brought up as a reason to continue with that relationship. And that was felt quite tough. You know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If, if you're not doing the job you're supposed to do, then people should be allowed to to move on and do something else. You know. I mean, yeah. I, I get it as well. There's sometimes where people just decide that they want to try and look for something cheaper and they want to move on. But then, if that's a relationship where people have, then then they should be allowed to do that, you know.
0: Mm.
1: The the way that we're going to do things with zero procure is that if anybody wants to not follow the model that we have, then they're, they're, they're totally free to do it, but we just won't be able to help them anymore. Yeah, it's I, I'm sure you know, what a mobile shop is. It's, it's that sort of triangle piece of ribbon that sort of folds on itself. It just, it's just if everybody does the bit that they're supposed to do, then everybody everybody does well at it.
0: Yeah, well, it, that comes back to the, everybody playing to their strengths as well, right? I mean, you guys are bringing in an, a line of strength that doesn't necessarily exist within their their business and probably you're giving them access to a network that um, that they can't get uh, without putting in a hell of a lot of blood, sweat, and tears.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a there's a move in a lot of things to, as well to not. I mean, you have to pay for something at some point, but the the way things are moving now, you, I mean, you'll you'll know this being in London for a long time, but everybody used to sort of buy an Evening Standard when they were getting on the tube at night time, but you don't pay for those things anymore. Yeah, you know, it's just you you know, and, and to think about what you actually had to pay for these things when you went on. But people still get them and they read them as much or as little as they want, you know. Hmm. But it's it's still ended up being a good business for the people that have them. It's just a slightly different way of modelling it. It just yeah. means it will give access to more people who want to look at the, you know, you know. In that case, the newspaper. You know, from yeah. our point of view, what we want to do is give any businesses and even ones that maybe never thought that they could the opportunity to. Well, we're looking for these sorts of things anyway. We might as well just ask these people. Because it's not going to cost us anything, and they might have access to better pricing than we would just looking at through, you know, through our own eyes. Yeah, and then, and if and the worst case scenario is we can't beat what they've already done, so they've just had a free health check in the current situation.
0: Yeah, which is fair enough, and I, you know I suppose your your sort of comment on the 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 standard there. That highlights as well that you know, change and evolution are inevitable, right? Nothing ever stays the same. So your access to to whatever your network can supply, I would imagine, is a as a constantly changing animal.
1: Absolutely, all the time. And the great thing about this, having experience in starting a business, it's, it's it's actually it's the things you learn during the process as well are the really exciting things. Mm. So we, you know, we we realize that there's there's lots of there's lots of businesses who would love to do stuff. But the one resource that we never really talk about as much is time. Yeah. You know, having the time to do things. And, and now what we're going to be finding ourselves in a situation where resources stretch beyond belief, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so being able to have a resource that you can call on when you need it and, you know, hopefully hopefully make it a valuable one to you. There's nobody I've spoke to yet that said that this is a bad model. And I've yep. some people who have basically asked them to really tear it to bits whenever they could. You know, mm. these are really, really people that I look up to. You know, who I really want. Yeah, I want somebody to tell me why this is wrong. But it's, it's, it'll, it just works. It just yep. works for people, you know, and it'll be a massive help to businesses that are rebuilding.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. Well, that that's great, and I I wish you all the very best with that. Over especially. I think, as you say, over the coming months, it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of businesses need help and assistance in, in uh, many different areas, and this will just be one of them. So I I wish you all the very best.
1: Yeah, I, I'm I'm really, really hoping that we can see a massively strong bounce back. I mean, one of my best friends owns a local bar for me down in Elsfield there. And just seeing the optimism swept away from the poor guys with their they're opening and they get ready for the busy Christmas period and then boom, close the night, you know. Yeah. No, I know. It's no. Just, it's... It's, a, it's just, you know, it's not just a commercial thing about what that does to you. It's just, it's a feeling of helplessness, you know. Yeah. Well,
0: the, the decision has been taken yeah. out of their own hands, hasn't it? That's the yeah. thing.
1: Yeah. And I, I see some great hospitality people. I mean, you know, and I, I obviously give them a full support to trying to make sure that the, the industry as a whole can get better voice within government because it certainly feels like and maybe that's it feels like we've been hung out to dry a little bit
0: yeah no indeed well on that uh, shiny note um <laughs> why um why should somebody start a career in hospitality in your opinion
1: I think because it gives you opportunity to do anything yeah and you know within one hospitality property you've got all ends of the spectrum you know, customer facing, back of house, creativity, financial, you know, all aspects of business life are encapsulated in hospitality. But the one real thing you get is to spend time with people. Yeah. So, you know, if you like people, then hospitality is absolutely the job for you. I mean, I have no idea what career my boys will go on and do, but I will be strongly recommending in their formative years they spend some time in hospitality, you know, wherever that may be, you know. Yep. Go and get a job at the Montreal Jazz Festival for a season and work in a bar over there or, you know, just when you go backpacking around the world but always make sure that you've got skills to be a waiter or a uh you know or, or, or a barman or or whatever it is you need to do a pot washer, you know. Yeah. And the noble profession of that is you know, it's 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 some of the people that are in this industry are phenomenal. Yeah, Couldn't the drive, the, the work ethic. The, you know, I know a, a lot of chefs, especially you know, and, and all that back of history. You know, these girls and guys who are doing that sort of job are they're just relentless.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we relentless. talk about, about it a lot uh, on the show about the fact that uh, you know that the, the there's, there's a lot made of the fact that it's a hard working industry but if you want to make it in any industry you have to work hard there's no you can't rely on luck to get you where you want to be so the the hard working element shouldn't shouldn't define this industry as its own sole, you know it's, we don't have the sole rights to hard work you know but if you if you want to crack on you've got to get your head down and get on with it
1: it's it's a hell of a a hell of a thing to be to have behind you as you go through your life, knowing what absolute hard work and applying yourself in the right way can do for you. I mean, bear in mind, this is a guy who grew up in a housing scheme in Edinburgh, you know, was a barman for years and then started a little cleaning company who went on to be able to manage to you know, sell that for multi-million pounds. Yeah. You know, hospitality is the only thing that was able to do that. Me. I, yep. I can't think of any other route that I could have taken where it, that it would have happened like that, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, what I like about your your journey is is that a lot of it doesn't necessarily feel pre-planned. You know, you've you've found yourself in situations where your your eyes have been open to the opportunity, and you've just kind of gone, well, let's let's give that a go. That sounds really interesting. Rather than going by the age of forty, I want to have done X and I, I'm going to be here, and I'm going to, you know, have done that, and and all of that sort of thing. Is that actually just keep your eyes open and uh, and your mouth shut and um, and see what comes? And it's it's amazing what gets presented to you.
1: I, su- I suppose if only I'd kept my mouth shut a few more times, it would have been <laughs> <laughs> it, would, it would have been okay. But no, you're right. You know, I, I, and I don't think kids should beat themselves up at 21, 22, 25, even. You know that. They yeah. don't have it all figured out because you don't need to have it figured out. No, nope. do, do do something you enjoy, you know. And hospitality is certainly one of those businesses where you can do that because you will learn stuff from people that you never thought in a million years you would meet. Yeah, and they might inspire you at a different point in your career, you know. I mine, mean, yeah. my I was in my thirties before it really started to, the penny started to drop about what the real possibilities could be, Phil. But yeah. it's only from having all that. Background of working with these amazing people. Some of the customers we used to have in bars I used to work in. I think back at some of the stuff that they used to do, you know. Yeah. And um, and it, it just it just what an education it is for you, speaking to yeah. speaking to people with loads of different experiences, you know.
0: Absolutely. Have you got any uh, screenplay plans yourself? <laughs> no.
1: No, I haven't. Actually, i don't think i'll be writing lockstock in two smoking Barrels. yeah i'll tell you what um, i'll tell you one of it's, it's a little bit hmm. but an old guy just when we were talking about that he used to drink in a bar and we used to always call people with their um, whatever they drank that was what the names was you know it was them um, av export because he used to drink, <laughs> drink like you know it could be grouse fill or whatever it depends on what their drink was that's what it used because you never used to know their second name after thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and he was just a guy that would come in after his job. He was a roofer. Have three pints of export every day, and read the paper, you know, and then go home. Very miserable on the outside, but very dry. Used to come up with some brilliant lines, to you know, that would cut yeah. down people. Very, very, very funny that way. And um and I remember coming in one day in the the, the tabloid paper in Scotland, the Daily Record, as you know, you know. And I yeah, yeah. And I turned around and I said, "Davey, have you got the record?" He said, "I've got twelve inches, but I don't know if it's a record." <laughs> <laughs> it's just very like, good. Guys, guys like that are just, you know. Imagine of a lifetime of speaking to people who can come from all walks of life. You know.
0: Oh God, yeah, that, absolutely. You the the characters you get access to in in this industry are just. Phenomenal. And you see them at their best and their worst right in, in times. But you kind of you end up becoming family to these people as well if you if they're regulars in your establishment. And I'd I'd love all of that.
1: Yeah, I'll yeah. Well, this that would have happened thirty years ago. And I still remember it today, you know. Yeah. We certainly haven't gone long enough, but there's some hilarious stuff that's gone on as I'm sure anybody in hospitality would be able to have
0: a yeah of those stories as well. Most of it uh, unrepeatable,
1: exactly, exactly. Yeah. But that's okay.
0: Absolutely, no, great. That, I, look, that 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 was wonderful, and I appreciate you uh, you taking us through your your life and, and career so far. Uh, and I, I really do wish you well with the uh, with your upcoming well, it's not even an upcoming project now, is it? It's it's here. It's
1: arrived. Yeah, we we launched it. We launched it in October. Obviously, the the timing is what the timing is. But thankfully. You know, universally, uh, people are really happy to talk to us about this. And um, unfortunately, a few of them have got fires to put out at the moment, Phil, and and other areas, you know. And um, which is which is fine, but I've, I've, I think we're going to be, I think, I think we found the right thing to do, and it feels right. It feels like it's a good thing to do. Yeah. You know, not just the fact it's a business, and you you obviously you want to to do well at it. But you know, one of the things that we hardwired into the, the business plan for Zero Procure was Foundation Zero. So, you know, if the business is doing well, well, whenever, from whatever it does, uh, the business will always pay 10% of its profits into that foundation and invite right. some of our supply partners to contribute as and when they want, you know, through, through different activities. And yep. that's there. So obviously we were born during the pandemic, but sometimes businesses, through no fault of their own, suffer a catastrophic event that puts their business in jeopardy. Mm. And the foundation will be there. This is this is what I really want to go on and do. And so I have to make sure this is a success. It's there to try and help these businesses, you know, if if they qualify through the criteria which you know the trustees would set out, then they can get somewhere to go for a bit of support. You know, as a business as opposed to individuals. there's, There's a number of different noble organizations that help people in hospitality you know who fall on hard times mm. actually from the businesses themselves having somewhere that they could turn to if something's happened to them through you know as, as i said through no fault of their own it would be nice to to be able to help some of those people in the future
0: yeah wow, that's, that's a, a phenomenally honorable thing to do and i think it, it it's also something that i think a lot more people are are more inclined to do now as well i think if your your heart is in the right place in in business then it is actually amazing what what we could all achieve just by all giving just something back so i I salute you as as uh, as having that as one of your objectives as well
1: thank you it'll be a it'll be an absolute privilege if we can if the foundation becomes what in my mind's eye i see it to be that would be that would be a nice legacy to leave for sure
0: yeah yeah brilliant so if people want to get in touch and, and learn a little bit more about you and your business and what you might be able to do for them what's the best method for them to do that
1: if they go to dot com, it's got our contact details on it it's got a, a lovely little um video that was narrated by my partner lucy which we think thinking that she might have that as a career she did such a good job on it right really? <laughs> but yeah no now's the time especially in hospitality if people have got time on their hands that they never thought they'd had, it may be an opportunity for them to have a look at things to see if they can do better in certain areas. I would certainly, would certainly love to talk to them.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Great stuff. Well, John, thank you very much for sharing your story with us today. And uh, as I say, I wish you all the very best with uh, with this endeavour. I think it could add a lot of value to uh, to the industry. So so very best of luck.
1: Thank you, Phil. It's been a nice chat to here. Yeah likewise take care cheers cheers mate. bye-bye
0: and there we have it another cracking career journey and this time demonstrating yet another crucial part of the world of hospitality procurement a huge thank you to john for sharing his story today don't forget we'll be back at 8 pm every wednesday until then thanks for listening and we'll see you next week